Have we been reading the book of Ruth all wrong? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kennedy and Glenn Powell. Today, we're excited to be joined by our friend Carolyn Custis James, who also happens to serve on our board of advisors. Carolyn is a writer and a speaker who thinks deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. She's the author of nu- numerous books, including Maelstrom, Finding God in the Margins, and The Gospel of Ruth, which is the book that we'll be discussing with her today. She also serves as an adjunct faculty member at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia and as a consulting editor for Zondervan's exegetical commentary series on the New Testament. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. Carolyn, we are really pleased uh, to have you join us. And five years ago, when we formed the Institute for Bible Reading, one of our early tasks was to form an advisory board. And we began searching for a very specific kind of person. We wanted people who, through hard searching and study, had come to grasp the big and the upper story of the Bible, which uh, without that, the Bible gets misinterpreted and miscommunicated. And we were looking for people who uh, knew how to articulate it in a compelling way. And uh, your name uh, was one of the first names that popped up on our, uh, our list. So we are very honored to, uh, to have you as our guest. And we have a, a tradition with guests. Uh, to start our our episode with them telling us how they got hooked on the Bible. Well, I never stood a chance. (laughs) I'm a PK, and so, you know, my dad was pastor of a Bible church. There you go. We got got Bible, and even as a young child, you know, we were— taught this this narratives of the Bible and it was a practice in our church um, that my father was very strongly behind that we would read the Bible through every year. And so as soon as I was of an age where I could do that, I was I was in. And it was always fun in our home on December 31st, <laughs> different ones would be coming out of their bedrooms saying, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just, it was sort of a, a big deal to do it every year. So that was, a, you know, a, I got a lot of Bible and my dad would invite seminary professors to come and speak at conferences and retreats. And, and I, could, I could not get enough of it. And um, when I was in college, my favorite professor was Stan Gundry's brother, Bob Gundry. This classes for me was like a whole new level. It was like peeling an onion, you know, just it got deeper and more beautiful. And um 
Yeah, I never forgave him for taking my sophomore year off as his sabbatical. <laughs> because it was, you know, it was just, it was incredible to be in his classes. And that just sort of awakened me that there was, there was more to this. And um, in, my, in my own work, um, I, be, I became very discouraged and appalled at what was happening in women's ministries. Because in my church, you know, we weren't, we didn't break out into the women are over here and the men are over there. We were all getting the same teaching. And I went to a women's brunch and I was horrified. And and I and I came away thinking, you know, we can't survive on this. And so my very first call was to challenge women to go deeper. And and not because we want to be academic or whatever, it's because when the bottom drops out of your story, and we all know this, the theology you reach for is your own. It's not your pastors. It's not mm. your, you know, your spouses, or it's not your Sunday school teacher. You reach for what you've got. Mm. And mm. if it's a little or a lot, it, you know, it's going to matter. And, um, and I, was, I was on the war path, and that's when... I got the opportunity to publish because because I was speaking to women's groups and they were I was telling them the story of Mary of Bethany as as the first great New Testament theologian. She was in the school of Rabbi Jesus. He defended her right to sit there in a world more like Afghanistan when it comes to educating women, not as violent, but you know what I'm talking about. And Jesus defended her against all the responsibilities that women would have had it in, had in that context. And I think before the conversation was over, Martha was sitting with them. And because um, she has deep theology in her conversations with Jesus. But then she struggles. Mary struggles because Jesus doesn't do what she expects when her brother is sick. And that's when he takes her to deeper, deeper levels of trust in him so that when he's facing a battle and his disciples, his male disciples are in denial, she steps forward to anoint him. Her theology led to action. And Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She anointed me for my burial. Which, if it wasn't an act of deep understanding, it was a horrible act of unbelief. But he was, he was ministered to by a woman he trained. And I told her story, and I talked to them about stories where, you know, the bottom drops out, and they know that. And it just sort of turned a corner for what I was able to do with with women, but that was, you know, it, the Bible isn't something we practice. It's a lifeline. It's where we find out who God is and it's where we find his heart for us by how he's 
involved in the lives of other people. And we can't afford not to engage it. And it's not a book of fairy tales and it's not a lot of happily ever afters. Mm-hmm. Really. It's real. It's raw. It's questions that you can't answer and that the Bible doesn't answer and all the howling that we get in the Psalms, which was what the people of Israel were singing in their worship services. So, um, you know, I, I think we've played games with it and we've sanitized it and we've mm. taken the the spine out of it. And I am so thankful for what you are all doing. And I was excited when I first heard about the initiative that you're taking with it, trying to get people back into scripture. Wow, that's great. Carolyn, it, it obvious is uh, obviously the case that you found that there's more in the Bible and more in the Bible specifically for women than what we are sometimes led to believe, like even in that story. I mean, who preaches the story, the stories of Mary that way, right? It's just not done very often. So there are things to be missed. But I want to back up a little bit. When you start your book, uh, The Gospel of Ruth, um, two things. One, I thought it was great to see that you actually printed, right, the, the entire book of Ruth at the beginning of the book. Right. That's just not done in books on the Bible where it's like, well, you start seeing references to this or that, you know, chapter and verse. Uh, but but who puts the whole book there? So that's my first question is what prompted that? And then secondly, backing up from your question about the Bible and women, um, I want you to talk to us about the question, is God good for women and and how that kind of got you started on this whole journey? Well. Um... It was a discussion with a prospective reader who said, you know, when I read a book like this, I'm always having to go grab my Bible and flip around in it. And would you please? Mm. And so I talked with um, Katya and at Zondervan, and that was an easy thing to do. Um, and it, I think it is important. And it also enabled us to put on in the translation, some of the highlights that are, mm, you know, in some yeah, of right. language that, that English readers don't see. And so, yeah, thank you. That was, um, I think that was important. And, you know, good thing it wasn't Ezekiel. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> you know, some, some books would be a little more challenging to do that with, but it, it's, I mean, even the fact that it's there in that form is an invitation to the reader to say, look, don't just start picking verses about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer or something. Just read the whole story, the way it's told in the Bible. So is God good for women? I mean, let's let's step back from even talking about the Bible. Um, how do we know God is actually good for women? Well, it's, sometimes it's hard to see that because, you know, I would answer an absolute yes to that question. Um, but if you ask me if the church is good for women, mm. I would not give you the same answer. And, you know, and some of the things we are learning about the scandals that are coming out of the church um, make the answer worse than I ever would have imagined. 
So the church is not a safe place for women. Yeah. It's that. It's that. And it's really distressing when there's somebody who's alone and you think, you know, it's a young woman and you think, well, you know, why don't you try to find a church? I don't feel like saying that anymore. Wow. I don't know. I don't know. And um, these were these were men we trusted and they are not worthy of our Mm. trust. Mm. So I'll say that. I will also say that I really struggled with the Bible because I had 10 years of singleness after college. And I was raised to believe that that I would find my highest calling in marriage and motherhood. And and, you know, my mother said to me, you will follow your husband. Well, I had no one to follow. Mm. And, um, And it felt like. I could miss what God had created me to be. And it turns out that that was probably one of the most important struggles that I had to face because it made me go back to scripture and ask those questions. You know, when I read Genesis 1 and 2, is it talking to me? Mm. And, And when we interpret these texts as Americans, we leave out the rest of the world. Right. You know, we don't think, is this, does this apply to a young woman in Afghanistan who now is back under the Taliban? Does this apply to a woman in Haiti who doesn't have a home anymore and, and her husband's gone? You know, does this apply to the little girl who's born with maybe some pretty severe disabilities or, you know, all the different contingencies of life? We don't talk about that. And so when I would hear sermons on Genesis 2 and the creation of the woman, I would feel like I was on the outside looking in. Mm. You know, someday I'll join this club, but I'm not in it now. And and just feeling like, you know, there's no story here. There's no purpose here. And it drove me back to the scriptures mm. and, you know, to ask different questions. And the questions got bigger than just about me because I began to notice other women's stories weren't playing out according to the script and um you know they they were divorced their husbands were out of jobs they had to go to work and be in the workplace and you know well what are women doing there and you know no support mm. from the church so i went back to genesis 1 and 2 and i am convinced <laughs> that there is so much packed in that in those two chapters that we have not unearthed yet. And that the, that the vision that God casts there is bigger than we ever imagined, that it is universal, that it is for all of us from our first breath to our last breath, that it's not confined to certain seasons of life, of life or certain demographics or your marital status. You know, it just, it got so big and, you know, I just got a, an email from a friend in Hong Kong who just took one of my books to Vietnam and a young woman there <laughs> wants to get a tattoo on her arm that says she's an Azer warrior, which is what <laughs> the language is used in Genesis 2 for the yes. woman. 
Um, so it's it's getting around, but it's it's you know Genesis one and two. That's our calling. We are called to image God. It means we have to know him and we have to learn what he loves and what his character is like. And people are supposed to get to know what God is like by rubbing shoulders with us. Mm. Um, it's, it exalts us to the highest possible level and value that's imaginable that we are created to be like God himself. Yeah. Mm. I love it, Carolyn, that, um, you know, it, this could have easily driven you away from the text and away from the church, but it sounds like it drove you back to the text into looking deeper and better at what's actually in the Bible. And I think that's such an important point that often it's the scriptures that can correct us. Even when we think we already know what it says, we don't often really know what it says because there's more there than we've been told. And the, the key is to have this commitment to discovering again or discovering for the first time what's really there. And I love that part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I always say when I'm speaking to people, when we open our Bibles, we are not reading an American mm. book. And, mm -hmm. You know, the book we're reading is in a foreign culture from the culture we live in. It's, it's a patriarchal culture. And if we don't get help from people who understand that culture, we're going to just make hash <laughs> out of the text. And we've done that. You know, we've done that. We've just, you know, it's it's insane what we've done, that we've lost sight of the rest of the world and that we don't mm. have that kind of humility when when we read the text. That's why, you know, I think patriarchy is a huge issue. And, you know, you haven't asked me about this, but I'll just insert it here that when I started looking at the stories of women and men in the Bible, I realized that, you know, we we assume as Americans that patriarchy, some kinder, gentler version of patriarchy is the Bible's message. Right. Mm. But it's not the Bible's message. Jesus didn't come to give us a kinder, gentler patriarchy. It's the backdrop to that message. And when you start to see that, you know, the stories of the Bible just explode with meaning mm. and power. So if you say, is God good for women? I say, well, if you read it as an American Westerner, then you're going to have a funny message for women that's that's going to make life tougher for them. But if you read it as somebody from a patriarchal culture, you're going to get a powerful message. And it has thrown me to the floor yeah. so many times. Um, so it's, it's a power tool for understanding the Bible's message. And the fact that any women show up in the Bible in that culture and have a voice and have impact on the purposes of God moving forward for the world, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, so God is, God is amazing for women. He loves his daughters mm -hmm. <laughs> and he, and he wants more from it. Talk, talk on this podcast a lot how 
the the Bible is a book, of course, but really a more accurate characterization is it's a library of books. So if you think about walking around the library and walking among the shelves and the stacks, uh, you know, most people see the book of Ruth as kind of on the Christian romance novel shelf. Like that's kind of just what it's been characterized as in a lot of sort of, especially like you were saying, popular American culture, right? Um, can you talk about how we arrived at this conception, especially probably more so in the West, I would imagine, um, and maybe in broad strokes, <laughs> uh, talk about what's what's off base about that conception. <laughs> Where to begin, right? Yes. I, I mean, I, I heard it that way my whole life, yeah. and I was in a class at the seminary where my husband taught. I I get to sit in anytime I want, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And Bruce Walkie was in town and he was teaching parts of the Old Testament that he hadn't really worked with. He usually would deal with the poetic books, the Psalms and Proverbs. And so, but he was doing the history books. And when he got to the book of Ruth, I, you know, internally rolled my eyes like, okay, (laughs) I've heard this a million times. And what happened in the next hour changed my life. Yeah. I told my husband, I bawled all the way home after hearing what he was learning about the book of Ruth. But we have taken it as a, a book for women. Mm-hmm. It's, it's named for a woman and it's a story about women. So this must be uh, something that the Old Testament writers tucked in for the ladies. <laughs> and I've, heard, I've heard it talked about like that. And um, you have what you have is um, Naomi, uh, who is an Israelite woman, and she and her husband have two sons and there's a famine and they're driven. They're driven because of the famine to go to Moab, which is Jordan today. And there's food there. And, you know, a famine means people are starving. So it's it's no little crisis. And when they get there, the very thing they're trying to avoid is death. And both Naomi loses her husband and she loses both of her sons. And in the interim, her sons have married Moabite girls, pagan girls. And Naomi decides to return home. So the, in, under patriarchy, a, a young girl who marries your son is is the property of your family so these girls are obligated to go with naomi back home and on the way naomi knows where she's heading because this is a patriarchal world she's a she's a widow she's postmenopausal she doesn't have a fresh start waiting for her so she emancipates the girls and ruth refuses to go home she goes on to bethlehem with her mother-in-law and the only way to survive is for her to go out and under the laws of Israelite laws of Moses, um, a foreigner can glean in the field of a landowner. So she goes to glean, which means she's scavenging. The harvesters clear the field and the scavengers come in and pick up whatever they can find. And while she's there, and she, and she is described in so many accounts as being a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful young woman who's out there 
glowing in the field. <laughs> Picture perfect, not a drop of sweat. Okay, and here comes the handsome, rich landowner named Boaz. Maybe with his shirt unbuttoned and... You know, just just like the cover of these romance novels, right? I can picture it as you describe this. <laughs> Sexiest yes. man alive. Yes. There he is. And their eyes lock and they fall in love. And she proposes marriage and they get married. And she has a baby boy. And it's like they all live happily Without ever after. And to say... That all my life I've had a hard time with the happily ever after part because people's stories don't work mm. like that. And so what I learned from Bruce Walkey was very different because they've started, they have better tools that keep evolving in, in biblical studies. And they were looking at the rhetorical method, which looks at it as literature which, you know, stops, this is what your, your, what you published with the Bible when you've taken out the verses and chapters um, that break it all up, it starts to read like a story. And it is a story. And all the pieces hold together. And what happens in chapter one, all the sorrow and loss and the terrible situation that these two women face when they go to Israel, all of that goes through the, the whole book. Naomi's complaints against God and Ruth's um, vow to her mother-in-law, those are going right straight through the book. You don't leave Naomi behind mm. in chapter one. It's her story. We're looking at the whole thing through her eyes. And what he said was that Ruth was leading the action. Mm. That she was taking the initiative with Boaz and that Boaz was responding to mm. her initiatives. Well, I can tell you right now, I wasn't raised on that message. And, you know, I, I lived in a conservative community where, you know, I wasn't supposed to be anything. I was supposed to be a support system for my husband if I ever had one. And um, it was over when I heard that. You know, it wasn't Priscilla and it wasn't Junia and it wasn't Deborah and it wasn't Esther. It was Ruth who completely mm. dropped the bottom out of my life where I thought, if Ruth, why not me? If she has responsibility to take care of her mother-in-law and push forward these initiatives as a foreign, undocumented immigrant, a new, con new convert, then why not me? What am I doing? And it was it was over at that point. And I get a lot of help from Genesis one and two and the creation description of the woman where our, I've been able to take that to little girls and elderly women and say, you know, this powerful language that God uses for the female when he creates her, the Azer Kanagdo is military language. The Azer is a warrior. That's how it's used in the mm. Old Testament. And even in Old Testament times, it shows up in men's names like Eliezer and 
Abai Azer and just plain Azer. Azer Azer Wiseman was the president of Israel and a military hero. And nobody's going to tease him because his Hmm. name is Azer. It's a strong word. And God wasn't creating somebody to feed Adam (laughs) and be around for raising the kids. He was raising a warrior up because they were already facing a battle. There was already an enemy in the garden. And this has been life-giving for women to say, wait a minute, I'm an image bearer. I have responsibility for what goes on in God's world. I'm not a spectator. And, um, and Ruth changed all of that for me. Um, and, you know, it's, Boaz isn't a loser in this story. I, in, for my money, he's, he's the best man mm. in the Old Testament. And and he's better when it ends than he was when it began. And he was amazing when it began. So it's not a, it's not a, a, we're not doing this where, you know, who's who's on, who's winning now. It, It wasn't about who was winning. It was about big sacrifices. They were all making to help one another, to help Naomi. So, you know, it's, yeah, we we've the Bible isn't teaching fairy tales and we are not living fairy tales. The Bible is for the real world. And you know, Bruce taught me that the book of Ruth is a is a Job story. It's a Job story that Naomi loses everything in a patriarchal world. A woman's value is gauged by the number of mm. her sons. And death wipes out everything. She has no sons. So what's she worth? She's a zero. And so is Ruth. And you would think that when all the men are gone, Ruth, Naomi is past childbearing years and Ruth is barren. She's had 10 years without a pregnancy. You would think the story would be over when the men are gone. But that's where the biblical camera zooms in and the real story begins. Mm. It's amazing. It's a, it, it's a powerful story. And, and one of the ironies of it, and I, and I read that, I have to tell you this, this is so cool. But in one of the commentaries on the book of Ruth, was saying that from this point on, this is rightful, this is what I say, the story belongs to Naomi. And one commentator underscores the atypical nature of this shift, especially within the ancient patriarchal context. And and this is what the commentary says. Interestingly, Elimelech is now called Naomi's husband Hmm. instead of her being called his wife. And then he says, though it is rare for a, for a man to be characterized with reference to a woman, he fin- and then he finishes off and says, in this story, Elimelech plays no mm. part. But the whole, the whole story is about the rescue of Elimelech, of, of, of providing a male heir to inherit his land 
and to carry on his legacy. You know, the men are never mm. out of the story. It's God and God's story doesn't leave people wow. out. But anyway, I love that that he said, you know, this finishes off Elimelech and I'm thinking, yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is fascinating, and you're you're singing our tune, you know, Carolyn. That um, people are reading these texts, these ancient texts, without you know, with with very little understanding about the context. And let's face it, you know, it's not quite as easy as saying, "Well, we'll just try to put ourselves in those people's shoes," um, unless you know we understand something of what you just unpacked there. Um, you're really not able to put yourself <laughs> in someone else's shoes. I know. I mean, when I was reading, I, I, when I was reading, um, you know, the account that the two, her two sons married these Moabite women, and I think you may bring this out in the book. The the gods that the Moabites worshipped demanded child sacrifices, and so. Was there the potential danger that had children been born to them while they were living, um, you know, in Moab, that the, the story could have become very complicated at that point? But again, to your point, we read this, and uh, it, it's for many people like a Harlequin novel. I've, I've heard sermons as though it's a guide to Christian courtship. This is how, how we should court. Uh, to your point, there's no reference that Ruth is a looker. You know, um, there, there are other, there are actually other passages where, you know, in comparison, I think it says that Rachel, you know, was beautiful in form and face in comparison to Leah, who, you know, maybe was cross-eyed or something, something like that. Um, but, and, and the other piece that I think, you know, if you ask, you know, the average churchgoer, what's, what's the book of Ruth? Oh, isn't that where we get the song, Whither Thou Goest, I Will Go, and song that's usually sung in weddings. And I think it usually is referencing that the woman is going to follow her husband. Your people will be my people, et cetera, et cetera. And so a, a complete mischaracterization of, uh, of the story from the, from the beginning. And to your point, um, that patriarchy colors all of these stories. Well, and under patriarchy, yeah. like I said, a woman's value is measured not by the fact that she's created in God's image or that she was called to be that to the to this mission that God put before his first two human beings, but that she's that she's measured by the number of her sons. So, you know. Naomi drops from a two to a zero, but she's postmenopausal, so she's really below zero. And Ruth is worse than that. And so one of the things that we don't even think about is that that this sheds a really bad light on Boaz to treat mm. this as a romance. I mean, think of it. Think of the disparity in their social status. She's a scavenger, like somebody outside McDonald's rummaging through the garbage can looking for the leftover Big Mac that somebody didn't finish. You know, that's where that's where she is. And he's a man of enormous power. His power is breathtaking at the city gate when he fights for Naomi. 
And um, for him to come to the field and be checking out the gleaners in his, you know, bring that to the Me Too Church to discussion. And what kind of man would he be? And he's an older man. He uh, he I didn't he addresses Ruth the same way Naomi does. He calls her my daughter. If he is this man of great honor that he's introduced as, Boaz had already married and produced sons for his family. If he hadn't done that, he would be a disgrace to his family and he would be shunned in the community. And then to imagine checking out a gleaner that everybody knows is barren. He would be so dishonoring his family. And I have to believe and, you know, we can say, well, maybe he was widowed, but we don't know that. And this is a polygamous culture. And the first readers of the book of Ruth would not have blinked at the thought that this man was already married and had sons of his own. And that makes his sacrifice in the final chapter a big deal because he's cutting into his own son's inheritance. If he's a man of stature in the community, Boaz has sons. I think I quoted in the book of Ruth um, a, a book that was written by a woman, a Jewish woman who researched patriarchal cultures. It's called Nine Parts of Desire. She ran into a Palestinian man whose wife had given birth to a daughter and then she couldn't get pregnant. And he was, he was almost violent with her. He said, I am nothing in this village without a son. Carolyn, another aspect that struck me when I was reading your book um, is that you characterize it as, at a very deep level, a book about suffering. That there is deep sorrow in this story. And this comparison of Naomi with Job, I think, had never struck me before. How we always, he's, he's the paradigm of suffering, right? Whenever you talk about somebody suffering in the Bible, we always jump to Job. And, and you're saying that in so many respects, the story of Naomi is a story of deep suffering. So what does the Gospel of Ruth teach us about this suffering that is so uh, deeply a part of this, this book? Naomi sort of gets pushed to the side when we read the book of Ruth, but we are reading her story. If you read the book of Ruth and the book of Job at the same time, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, she's completely wiped out. Mm-hmm. And unlike Job, she doesn't get to start over because she, she passed childbearing years. And her lament is really like what Job says, the Almighty has raised his hand against me. And, you know, and yeah. I, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's worse for her because there's no starting over. She is going home to rent out the clock and die. And there's no future. She can offer nothing to her daughters-in-law and they're barren, you know, I mean, it's just a mess. And it's amazing that the story would continue 
at that point. Because in that culture, she is a person of no interest. But she's of serious interest to God. And the key word in the book of Ruth is the word hesed. It's a word for love. It's a word for a stubborn love, for a sacrificial love, for a love that is voluntary and no one has a right to it. And it's, and it's embodied all through the story. And Naomi's greatest loss is to lose God's chesed. And she has every reason to think she has lost it. And, and then she can't get rid of this daughter-in-law. But you know, all the way through the book of Ruth, God is answering Naomi through Ruth. You know, on the road back to Bethlehem, she's being held in a human embrace and hearing powerful words of covenant love spoken to her by her daughter-in-law, I will never leave you. And when when her daughter-in-law goes out to glean, she's not content to pick up scraps. Mm. And all the way through the book of Ruth, the conversations between Ruth and Boaz are about the Mosaic law. And Ruth will lead Boaz again and again from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. This is so important for people who are picking up the Bible again today and reading it. Because it's really easy for us to, to check off the do's and don'ts and not realize that there's a spirit here shows up in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that takes us way beyond just checking off. Have I read my Bible? Have I prayed? Did I go to church? We are called to so much more. And it comes out in the book of Ruth because she risks her life. Think of what Boaz could have done to her and nobody would have answered it. And she confronts him with how he's doing his running his business, you know, because she doesn't want to take home scraps to her mother-in-law. And by the time he gets through responding to her, she lugs home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. Hmm. And Naomi looks at a load of barley and realizes that God has not forgotten his hesed for the living and the dead. And it's just, you know, it's a turning point for Naomi, where she sees from what Ruth and Boaz have done, mm-hmm. that God has not forgotten her in such a loud statement against the backdrop of her world, that she matters. Mm-hmm. When she dies, it's zero. It's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, um, this partnership, uh, as you call it, this blessed alliance that takes place, um, shows that this alliance, this partnership, 
is precisely where agency of the gospel actually reaches Naomi, right? So this is part of the story of the book that the agents of the gospel are men and women, and especially men and women together. Yeah, it's explosive. All through the Bible, it is explosive when men and women join forces for the kingdom. Um, you know, you get it in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And by the time the story ends, the whole community is impacted by the sacrifices that they're making. And, you know, when you look at the story of Esther and Mordecai or Mary and Joseph or Jesus and Mary of Bethany, you know, all through the Bible, you have it with Deborah and Barak and Jael, you, you know, again and again, when God's sons and daughters come together, something different happens, and it's not the battle of the sexes, and there are no losers. Mm -hmm. We all stand taller. The gospel shines through their stories. You know, it's, it's oh, we need this now so much mm -hmm. in the church. Because the church doesn't look like that. Yeah. And it's all of us. It's not just marriage. It's, you know, it's, it's every male-female relationship. You know, I am so thankful for the men I get to meet in my ministry that are all over the world. And some of these men absolutely take my breath away with how they live as God's sons. And the sacrifices they make and how they break well beyond the letter of the law and the kinds of things that they do. But, I mean, you got to love Boaz. He's, you know, it's, he's coming out of a famine. He's in economic recovery. He needs every speck of grain he can harvest, you know, to get back on his feet again. And she takes home more than he's going to pay his his harvesters. You know, that would take them a half month to a full month of work to take home as much as she's going to take home. And Neil gets it, you know. So, yeah, I think the book of Ruth changed my life. You know, I just feel like we don't have any excuse. We need to be paying attention to what's going on around us and doing what we can to live out the gospel and the gospel is not a call, a call to stardom. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to the cross. It's a call to put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. And that happens in the book of Ruth. Yeah, that's great. Well, Carolyn, thank you for joining us to, to talk about this book. We, we, you know, this, this is the Bible reset podcast, right? So one of the things that we try to do is quote unquote, press the reset button on some of the misunderstandings and misconceptions that people might have about uh, the Bible as a whole, but also various segments and parts and books of the Bible. And, uh, and you're cl clearly doing that in spades with, with the gospel of Ruth, but also as, as well as your, your other work, I guess, on, on the Bible and women and how they relate to each other. Um, so, so thank you for that. We appreciate you joining us. If any of our listeners are interested in checking out the Gospel of Ruth, you know, like any podcast interview on a book, we just scratched the surface. And uh, and I know three of us, Paul, Glenn and I really enjoyed reading through the book and just uh, digging into the riches that, that Carolyn gets into there. 
Um, you can find it anywhere that books are sold. I'll also put a direct link into the show notes so uh, you can check it out there. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Changemakers community of donors who have pledged monthly gifts of any amount to help us change the way the world reads the Bible. To learn more and to become a changemaker for yourself, head over to instituteforbiblereading.org changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.